All right, thank you for coming to the third and final lecture on the history of the King James Bible. And I want to thank the church and the pastor once again for having me in, feeding me, put me in a nice hotel, taking care of me. I really appreciate it. Now, let me review briefly what we covered in Lecture 1. We looked at King James, the Church of England, the Hampton Court Conference, the original tongues, the former translations, and we looked especially at the work and influence of William Tyndale. Now, the main thing you need to remember from Lecture 1 is how the authorized version is both a translation and a revision. Now, last night in Lecture 2, we looked at the Bishop's Bible. We looked at some lesser-known other English Bibles before the King James Bible. We looked at the relationship of the Bishop's Bible to the King James Bible. We looked especially at Manuscript 98 and the Bodleian Bishop's Bible. So the main thing you need to remember from Lecture 2 is how the authorized version is based primarily on the Bishop's Bible. All right, Lecture 3 tonight, the 1611 King James Bible and its editions. This is going to cover the King James translators, the translation companies, John Boys and his notes, the making of the 1611 King James Bible, its title page, its preliminary material, its format, the King's Printer editions, the Cambridge editions, and the Oxford editions. Now, let's begin with a letter of King James regarding the translators. After the Hampton Court Conference in January of 1604, a list of potential translators was submitted to King James. On July 22, 1604, the king wrote a letter mentioning that he had appointed 54 learned men as translators, and he also sought the assistance of other learned men in the kingdom. There was a tremendous revival of learning that preceded the translation of the King James Bible. The King James translators were indeed learned men, the greatest Hebrew and Greek scholars of their day. Translator Lancelot Andrews knew so many languages that it was said he could have served as an interpreter at the Tower of Babel. <laughs> Translator Miles Smith was called a walking library. Translator John Reynolds was called a living library, a third university, Oxford and Cambridge being the first two. Translator John Overall was said to have spent so much so many years lecturing in Latin, he found it troublesome to speak English in his sermons. Nine of the King James translators had served as Regis professors of Hebrew or Greek. Three had been Regis professors of divinity. All right, here are some statements made by the King James translators about themselves. There are three statements that are found in the translator's dedication to the king and also from their preface. These were the greatest scholars in the world, yet they were not full of themselves. 
Now, this is a, a page from the first biography of the King James translators. There have been several biographies of the translators written over the years, but the first attempt to provide some biographical information about the translators was written about 1650. There is a five-page manuscript in the Lambeth Palace Library. It was first noticed and mentioned in a book in 1905 with a transcription of just the first four pages. The fifth page was miscatalogued and thought lost until I obtained a copy of it some years ago and discovered that it went with the other four pages of the manuscript. Now, most recently, there's a biography of the King James translators called God's Secretaries, and this was written in 2003 by Adam Nicholson, and it was written to coincide with the 400th anniversary of the selection of the King James translators. It is still in print. I believe they have changed the title, but it is worth getting. All right, here is one of the manuscripts that lists the names of the translators. There are extant seven manuscript copies listing the King James translators, along with which of the six translation companies they worked on. There are 47 men listed. Some manuscripts list men by office instead of name. Some lists omit a name. Most of these manuscripts also include the list of the rules given to the translators. There are also other men who we know did have a part in the translation that are not listed here. Various names have been speculated over the years. All of the evidence is mentioned in my book, King James, His Bible, and Its Translators. Now, this manuscript tells us that the work of translation took place at Westminster, Oxford, and Cambridge. Let's look first of all at Westminster. Here is Westminster Abbey. This is the English National Church adjacent to the Palace of Westminster where Parliament meets. Now, an abbey is a Catholic monastery for monks. The origins of Westminster Abbey go back to the 10th century. Construction of the present church began in 1245. It is now a very large complex. Westminster Abbey was a monastery until the time of Henry VIII, who made it into a cathedral, and a, a cathedral is simply a church that contains the headquarters of a bishop. In 1560... Queen Elizabeth turned it into a church responsible directly to the sovereign as it remains today, church and state. All the monarchs of England are crowned at Westminster Abbey. Over 3,000 of the most significant people in English history are buried or commemorated at Westminster Abbey. King James is buried there. All right, the second place translation took place was at Oxford University. It was founded in 1096. It is the oldest English university and the second oldest university in continuous existence. 
It is also one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Many of the King James translators went there. It is divided into self-governing colleges. Oxford University operates the largest university press in the world. The third place of translation was Cambridge University. It was founded in 1209. It is the second oldest English university and the fourth oldest university in continuous existence. It, too, is one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Many of the King James translators went there. Like Oxford, it is divided into self-governing colleges. And if you were here last night, you may recall that I mentioned Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge, when I talked about Samuel Ward. Cambridge University operates the world's oldest publishing house, and it is the second largest university press in the world. All right, here are the six translation companies. So this shows how the books of the Bible were divided up among the translation companies. Now, the second Westminster company would be the one responsible for Manuscript 98 that I mentioned in Lecture 2 and will mention today as well. Samuel Ward, whom I mentioned last night, was on the second Cambridge company. All right, here is Richard Bancroft. He lived 1544 to 1610. He was the chief overseer of the King James Bible. He was educated at Cambridge. He attended the Hampton Court Conference as the Bishop of London. Then he became the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1604 until his death. He was also the Chancellor of Oxford University from 1608 until his death. He was a strong opponent of the Puritans. He never saw the completed King James Bible. He died at Lambeth Palace just before the Bible's publication. Now, before looking at the 1611 King James Bible itself, let's look at how the Bishop's Bible was transformed into it. So we want to look at the making of the King James Bible. Now, there are extant some original letters, documents, and manuscripts that relate in some way to the work of the King James translators. This would also include some statements in the translator's preface. I discuss all that are known in my book, King James, His Bible, and Its Translators. There are seven major pieces of evidence that I want to mention in this lecture that provide us with some insight as to how the translators transformed the 1602 Bishop's Bible into the 1611 authorized version. So what we're going to look at is the translator's rules manuscript, the Synod of Dort, Samuel Ward's notebook, manuscript 98, the Bodley and Bishop's Bible, the biography of John Boys, and finally, John Boys's notes. 
All right, first of all, the making of the King James Bible, number one, would be the translator's rules manuscript. Now, I introduced the list of rules given to the translators in Lecture 1, and I revisited it in Lecture 2. There are extant seven manuscript copies of these rules. They differ slightly in wording and spelling. There were originally 14 rules. The 15th rule was added later, and it does not appear in all the manuscripts. Most manuscripts also include the list of the names of the translators and the company they served on. Now, Rule 1 and 14 we've already looked at. They relate to the King James Bible being based on the Bishop's Bible and the earlier English translations. Rule 2 through 4 relate to translation practice. Rules 5 through 7 relate to the format of the text and margins. Rules 8 through 12 relate to translation procedure. Rule 13 relates to translation company organization. And Rule 15 was meant to clarify the third and fourth rules. All right, here is uh, a representation of a meeting called the Synod of Dort, which occurred in 1618 to 1619. This is the second piece of evidence in the making of the King James Bible. The Synod of Dort was a council of the Dutch Reformed Church held at Dortrecht or Dort in the Netherlands. It was designed to settle the theological controversy between the Calvinists and the Arminians. I discuss this synod in detail in my book, The Other Side of Calvinism. Foreign representatives also attended this meeting, including a delegation from England. King James translator Samuel Ward was in attendance representing the English church. The British delegation issued a report to the Synod of Dort about the translation of the King James Bible. The report paraphrased some of the original rules given to the translators and added some other guidelines relating to how to represent words in the text, not in the original languages, but necessary in English, chapter summaries, and the inclusion of a genealogy and map of the Holy Land. The report also supplies information about how the work was carried out that supplements the translator's rules and adds information about a general meeting of 12 translators for the final revision and how two translators put the finishing touches to the new Bible. Now, these rules are listed in my book, King James, His Bible, and its translators. All right, here's Samuel Ward and his notebook that I introduced last night. This is the making of the King James Bible number three. The notebook contains Ward's notes on one complete book of the Bible and two chapters of another book. It has proposed revisions to the Bishop's Bible. It shows us a translator working individually on a particular book of the Bible. Now, were the translators in each company initially assigned their own biblical book? We don't know. 
All we know for certain is that Samuel Ward did do some translating on his own. All right, here is the Lambeth Palace and Manuscript 98 that I introduced last night. This is the making of the King James Bible number 4. Manuscript 98 is a proposed biblical text for Romans through Jude made by the Westminster New Testament Company of Translators. It contains corrected verses from the Bishop's Bible written out with blank space signifying verses in the Bishop's Bible that were to be left unchanged. It shows the completed work on a first rough draft of the biblical books a translation company was assigned. It gives us a text that is approximately halfway between the 1602 Bishop's Bible and the 1611 King James Bible. Each biblical book, except 2nd and 3rd John, begins on a new page. This could be because it would allow for easy circulation of a particular biblical book to certain members of the translation company or other translation companies or even other scholars throughout the land for review. All right, here is the Bodleian Library and the Bodleian Bishop's Bible that I introduced in Lecture 2. This is the making of the King James Bible number 5. Now, the Bodleian Bishop's Bible is the only surviving copy of the 40 large church Bibles that the printer supplied to the translators. A 1602 Bishop's Bible with annotations made by the translators. And these indicate changes that were to be made to the Bishop's Bible. Now, the New Testament annotations record two stages of revision by the Oxford New Testament Company of Translators. This shows that the company went over its work a second time. The New Testament text is from about two-thirds to five-sixths complete. So what that means is... Two-thirds to five-sixths of the corrections made made it to the final 1611 King James Bible. The Old Testament annotations have no change of hand in the two places where the work of one translation company would have ceased and another began. So that would be between 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and between Song of Solomon and Isaiah. So the Old Testament annotations represent the work at a single point in time, combining the work of the First Westminster, First Cambridge, and First Oxford companies. The Old Testament text is about five-sixths complete. All right, here is Anthony Walker's biography of John Boyce. This is the making of the King James Bible number six. The most important translator of the King James Bible was John Boyce. He lived 1560 to 1643. He learned Hebrew and Greek during grammar school. He enrolled in St. John's College, Cambridge when he was 14. He frequently worked in the college library from four in the morning 
until 8 at night. He became a lecturer at St. John's College at age 22. He also gave private lectures on Greek from his bed at 4 a.m. He kept a diary. One volume survives from this diary, written when he was age 66 to 78. Even in old age, he studied eight hours a day. He read 60 grammars of Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Syriac, and other languages. He had in his personal library copies of the writings of every ancient Greek author. He was as familiar with Latin, Greek, and Hebrew as he was with English. Now, the reason we know so much about John Boys is because of a biography written about him by a younger friend named Anthony Walker. Two manuscript copies of the biography survive. One manuscript was transcribed in a book in 1735. And the image you have on the screen is from that book. And if you're sitting close enough, you'll see near the bottom there's a new article that starts, and it'll say something like the life of John Boyce. Now, Walker's biography is important, not only for the info it provides on John Boyce, but because of the four paragraphs it contains that relate to Boyce's work as one of the King James translators. It provides information about the making of the King James Bible that nothing else does. It also mentions the notes that John Boyes alone took of the proceedings of the final meeting of 12 translators, which notes he kept till his dying day. All right, let's talk about those notes. John Boyes' notes. This is the making of the King James Bible, number 7. John Boyes served on the second Cambridge company that translated the Apocrypha. It was only recently discovered that Boyes had also been annotating a copy of the Apocrypha during the time he served as a translator. The notes he made at the final meeting of the translators consist of 39 pages on 498 items encompassing 480 verses in the Epistles and Revelation. They are written mainly in Latin, with some Greek and English as well. The notes show the Greek text being criticized and analyzed, and alternative English translations being compared. It tells us more about how the translators thought than about how they did the fi their final revision work. We actually don't know the names of the other 11 men that were at this final meeting of the 12 translators. We, we have information maybe about two others, and that's it. Now, in my book, The uh, King James, His Bible, and Its Translators, I have a whole chapter on the John Boy's notes. All right, here is Ward Allen's book on John Boy's notes. Although scholars knew about John Boyes' notes because Anthony Walker mentioned them in his biography of Boyes, they were not discovered until the 1950s in the Bodleian Library 
by a man named Gustavus Payne. And he had written a biography of the King James translators that was published in 1959, the year after his death. Ward Allen read about the boy's notes in Payne's book while he was teaching at Auburn University in 1964. After getting a copy of the notes, he published a preliminary description in a journal article in 1966. And then in 1969, he published a transcription of the notes with an analysis in his book, Translating for King James, Notes Made by a Translator of King James's Bible. This was published by Vanderbilt University Press. We would not know anything about John Boyce's notes were it not for Dr. Allen's painstaking work. I have already mentioned his two other books in Lecture 2. Now, David Norton, whom I mentioned in Lecture 2, he discovered a second copy of John Boyce's notes in 1995 in the British Library. The name of John Boyes will come up again later in this lecture. So, the making of the King James Bible. There is only one 17th century description of the King James translators at work in what looks like their companies. It was written by historian and legal scholar John Selden. He died in 1654. He knew some of the translators. And here's what he said. That part of the Bible was given to him who was most excellent in such a tongue, Hebrew or Greek, and then the translators met together. And one read the translation, either the Bishop's Bible or a proposed revision of it, while the rest of the translators held in their hands some Bible, either of the learned tongues or of some modern language. If they found any fault, they spoke. If not, he read on. Now, we know the work of the companies took about four years until 1608. This would include private review by individual translators, revision by the company, circulation among the other companies, more revision, review by other learned men, still more revision, and then the preparation of a final text by each location, Westminster, Oxford, and Cambridge. We know from Anthony Walker's biography of John Boyes that three copies of the whole Bible were sent to London to be reviewed at a general meeting of 12 translators. This occurred from 1609 to 1610. Two other men, one a bishop and one a translator, then added the dedication and the preface to the King James Bible. All right, here is the famous title page of the 1611 King James Bible. Now, as we know from the title page, the completed Bible was published in 1611. We don't know the exact date. We don't even know the month. The size was about 11 by 16. 
It was a large folio. What that means is a large sheet of paper turned lengthwise and folded once, which yields four printed pages on a sheet. Now, the Bible was not bound right away. The bound weight of the Bible was about 18 pounds. There were 1,464 pages. However, they were unnumbered. Now, this title page, it's a copper plate engraving. It has images of the Trinity at the top. You have a dove, a lamb, and then you have the divine name. You have the four gospel writers in the corners, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have Moses holding his rod and the Ten Commandments on the left, and Aaron the high priest on the right. At the bottom, there's an image of a pelican feeding her blood to her young, representing Christ giving himself for the church. Now, there is also an alternate 1611 general title page. A few copies of the 1611 Bible have an alternate woodcut general title page that matches the 1611 New Testament title page. A second printing of the King James Bible was begun in 1611 and completed in 1613. Almost all copies have the general title page dated 1613 and a New Testament title page dated 1611. A handful have a general title page also dated 1611. Some of these Bibles have been found with altered dates on the general title page from 1613 to 1611 to make it seem like it was a first printing. Now, the first printing is called the He Bible. The second printing is called the She Bible. And those designations come from a variation in the reading in Ruth 3.15. One says he, one says she. Now, the second printing corrects most of the typos of the first printing, but it also introduces its own typos and spelling variations since it was printed from a new setting up of the type. The She Bible is a page-for-page reprint of the first edition He Bible, but some copies are made up of sheets from both printings. All right, let's look at the preliminary matter in the 1611 King James Bible. This is the dedication to the king. There were 34 pages of preliminaries in the AV 1611 after the title page. First is the dedication to King James. It's three pages long. It's written by Bishop Thomas Bilson. The text is in Roman type. It is still printed in some modern editions of the King James Bible. The dedication mentions the role of King James in apprehending that there should be one more exact translation of the Holy Scriptures into the English tongue. And it calls King James the principal mover and author of the work. All right, next we have the translator's preface. It's called The Translators to the Reader. 
It was written by Miles Smith, who was also one of the final editors of the authorized version. It's 11 pages long. The text is in Roman type. It is a very learned address with Latin and Greek words and classical and biblical allusions. It is not reprinted in modern King James editions. Most people would not understand many things in it. Now, there are available annotated editions of this preface that explain the things that are in it. All right, then you have a calendar. This was a liturgical calendar noting the cycles of the sun and moon, important dates, and scripture readings for morning and evening prayers. This took up 12 pages. All right, next in the preliminaries was an almanac. It's an almanac of feast days for 39 years, beginning in 1603. It occupies one page. This was followed by an Easter table. This is simply a table to calculate the date of Easter for any given year. It was also one page. This was followed by a lectionary. This sets out the order in which the Psalms and other scripture passages are to be read. And it is five pages. Then you have the table of contents. Now the numbers in the table of contents tell us how many chapters each book of the Bible has. The pages in the Bible are unnumbered, as I mentioned. Then you have the genealogies. John Speed obtained the right for 10 years to insert into every copy of the 1611 Bible 40 extra pages of material <laughs> consisting of a genealogy from Adam to Christ with a title page and a preface, a map, and a gazetteer. These are inserted after the regular preliminary material and before the book of Genesis. Several varieties of the title page to the genealogies were used, most of which contained the royal coat of arms. This was followed by a one-page preface to the 34 pages of genealogies. Then you have the gazetteer. It's a two-page gazetteer that begins on a right-hand page and it's divided in half by a double-spread map. A gazetteer is simply a geographical dictionary or directory that's used with a map. All right, here is the map. The map is a map of Canaan or the land of Israel. It was reduced from a larger wall map. Here are both pages of the map, just like you would see it with the Bible open. The first page of the gazetteer from the previous slide is on the front side of the left-hand page. And then the second page of the gazetteer is on the reverse of the right-hand page. Two very similar editions of the map were used. All right, here are a couple pages, actually the first two pages, from the 1611 King James Bible. 
Now, the page on the left is actually a right-hand page, and then the page on the right is what's on the back side of it, so it would be a left-hand page. Now, these pages have ruled margins with a text area of approximately 9 by 14. The text is in two columns. There are 59 lines per full column. The biblical text is in black letter with Roman type used for all of the other text on the page and words in the biblical text with no equivalent in the original languages. Now we would use italics for that. There are no apostrophes. There are no quotation marks. The letter I is used for both I and J, so there's no J in the Bible. The letters U and V are interchangeable. V is used at the beginning of words for both letters, and U is used elsewhere in words for both letters. The letter S in words, except a capital letter or except at the end of a word, is an old character called a long S that looks almost like an F. Now, the right-hand pages have the chapter number that begins on the page in the middle of the header. Left-hand pages have the name of the biblical book, except for the Psalms, which has the book title in the header on both pages. The subject matter of each page appears on both sides of the header. There's a catchword at the bottom of the right-hand column to indicate the first word on the next page. Each chapter begins with a summary of its contents. The first word in each chapter has a large ornamental initial capital letter, usually five lines high. The first chapter of each book has an even larger initial capital letter. Each verse begins on a new line preceded by the verse number. Now, in the margins, there are no notes, but there are 8,990 cross-references, 8,357 other annotations consisting of literal translations, alternate English renderings, and miscellaneous information. All right, here is the title page to the New Testament of the 1611 Authorized Version. It is a woodcut with the title, the four gospel writers, and the emblems of the Trinity, surrounded by the 12 apostles on the right and the tents of the 12 tribes of Israel on the left. The design matches the general title page of the 1602 Bishop's Bible. The authorized version had no other title pages like the original Bishop's Bible. Remember how it had five different title pages? The 1611 authorized version has the general title and then the New Testament title only. Now, according to a survey conducted a few years ago, there are only about 170 copies of the first edition, 1611 King James Bible, still in existence. Most of these are in libraries and museums. Let me tell you about a recent discovery. In 2015, that's just last year, 
at Drew University in New Jersey, they identified a first edition 1611 Bible on the rare bookshelves. It was in a box labeled Bible 1611 R. Barker. It was missing the title page. It was listed in a 1950 card catalog, but it was never put in the newer digital catalog. It was actually exhibited at the library in 1935 and 1977 and then completely forgotten about. So that was discovered last year. Now, the King's Printer issued four more large folio editions of the King James Bible. Here is the title page from the 1613 edition. The 1613 large folio edition differs from the later King's Printer editions in that the text has 72 lines to a page instead of the original 59 lines, thus reducing the total number of pages needed to print the Bible. All right, here's the 1617 King James Bible title page. This was another large folio edition. It reads page for page with the earlier and later King's Printer editions, except the 1613. However, because the type had to be set up each time, there are minor variations in the text. Then we have the 1634. The 1634 large folio edition reads page for page, with the earlier and later King's Printer editions, except the 1613. Now again, because the type had to be set up each time, there are minor variations in the text. The name of printer John Bill now appears on the title page along with Robert Barker. And finally, we have the 1640 This is another large folio edition that reads page for page with the earlier King's Printer editions, except the 1613. Once again, because the type had to be set up each time, there are minor variations in the text. Now, in this edition, the letter J is now used, and the letters U and V are used in the modern sense. The name of printer John Bill again appears on the title page along with Robert Barker. The New Testament title page is actually dated 1639. Now, after 1611, the King's Printer also issued many separate New Testaments of the Authorized Version and smaller-sized Bibles printed in black letter or in Roman type. But it is actually the editions of the King James Bible printed by Cambridge University Press and Oxford that are the basis of our modern King James Bibles. Here is the title page from the Cambridge 1629 King James Bible. Of the four most important editions of the King James Bible after 1611. The first three were published by Cambridge University Press. The 1629 edition 
was the first King James Bible ever published by the Cambridge Press. It has the first systematic refinement of the King James Bible. Typos were corrected. The spelling was standardized. And italics and marginal notes were revised. There is no record of the men responsible for this. What you have to keep in mind is in the original 1611 Bible, the same word might be spelled two different ways in the same verse. All right, here is a page from that Cambridge 1629 Bible. The type is in Roman type. The letter J is used. The letters U and V are standardized. However, that alternate S character is still used. Apostrophes are just beginning to be used. The pages are numbered. Next, we have the Cambridge 1638 edition. This is the second major Cambridge edition of the King James Bible. You have a continued refinement of the King James Bible, especially the spelling being standardized and the use of italics made uniform. Original translators, John Boys and Samuel Ward, had a hand in preparing the text in this Bible. Here's a page from the Cambridge 1638. You have relatively modern type like the 1629 edition. The Old Testament, the Apocrypha, and the New Testament all have separate pagination. All right, then you have the Cambridge 1762 edition. This is the third major Cambridge edition of the King James Bible. It was edited by Francis Sawyer Paris. He was the master of Sydney Sussex College, Cambridge. He had four degrees from there. He was the principal librarian of Cambridge University. He had worked on earlier Cambridge Bibles for the university press. What you have here is modernization and standardization of the text, punctuation, capitalization, spelling, italics, chapter summaries, running titles, and marginal references. And then you have more apostrophes added. Here is a page from the Cambridge 1762 edition. The type still uses that alternate S character. The pages are not numbered. However, there are dates added in the margins. It was issued in large folio and in a smaller size. All right, here is the Oxford King James edition, the first major Oxford edition, published in 1769, edited by Benjamin Blaney. He was a noted Hebrew scholar, writer, Vice Principal of Hertford College, Oxford. He had four degrees from Oxford. He became Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford. Now, Oxford began printing Bibles in 1675. In 1764, the Oxford Press ordered a collation of existing Bibles with the most authentic edition of the present translation. An attempt was made to eliminate all typos 
and further modernize and standardize the text. Blaney's edition did become the standard King James Bible. Blaney wrote a report of his revision work, and it was published in a popular magazine in 1769. Blaney's complete report is reprinted in my book, King James, His Bible, and Its Translators. Here is a page from the Oxford 1769 King James Bible. The type still uses that alternate S character. The pages are not numbered. There are dates in the margins. It was issued in large folio and in smaller size. The text and punctuation are basically like our King James Bibles today. Now, there are yet some special editions of the King James Bible published by Oxford and Cambridge that we need to look at. This is the title page of the Oxford 1833 edition of the King James Bible. Due to concern about the accuracy of the printing of the King James Bible, and also renewed interest in the original 1611 version, in 1833... Oxford University Press issued an exact reprint, typos and all, exact reprint, in Roman type of the 1611 Bible. It was issued in two volumes, Genesis through Song of Solomon and Isaiah through Revelation. This allowed people to easily see what the exact readings and spellings of words were in 1611. Copies of the 1611 Bible were rare, they were expensive, and the black letter type was difficult to read. So this was a great thing that Oxford did in 1833. Here is a page from that Oxford 1833 edition. Every page has the exact wording, spelling, and marginal references of the 1611 Bible, but in Roman type with italics used to represent words not in the original languages. It also contains all the preliminary matter in the 1611 Bible. And then it included a select collation of the editions of 1611 and 1613. Then you have the Cambridge 1909. Here's the title page. Now, 1909, that's pretty close to 1911. 1911 would have been the 300th anniversary of the publication of the authorized version. So as that date approached, Cambridge University Press published its own Roman-type edition of the 1611 Bible. It was issued in five volumes, three Old Testament, one Apocrypha, and one New Testament. Now here's a couple pages from that Cambridge 1909. Each page in the original 1611 appears across two pages of the Cambridge 1909 edition. Each page in the Cambridge 1909 reproduces the text from one column of a 1611 page. Every page has the exact wording, spelling, and marginal references 
of the 1611 Bible, but in Roman type with italics. It contains no preliminary material except the dedication to the king and the translator's preface. All right, then you have the Oxford 1911. And here is an image of the uh, title page of the Oxford 1911 Roman type edition. In 1911, for the 300th anniversary of the authorized version, Oxford University Press republished the 1833 Roman type edition of the Bible with a lengthy introduction by a man named Alfred Pollard. This Bible was reprinted by at least two publishers in the 1980s and 1990s, and again for the 400th anniversary of the authorized version in 2011. Most people have no idea that these were reprinted from the Oxford 1911 edition. Neither do they have any idea that the Oxford 1911 was itself a reissue of the Oxford 1833 Roman type edition. Now, also in 1911, Oxford issued a reduced size facsimile of the Bible of 1611. So it wasn't reset in Roman type. It was an exact facsimile, and it has the lengthy introduction by Alfred Pollard plus a transcription of historical documents relating to the making and printing of the English versions of the Bible up to and including the authorized version of 1611. Now, this introduction and documents were also published separately. Most modern facsimiles of the authorized version are printed from a copy of this volume, the 1911 reduced size facsimile of the authorized version done by Oxford University Press. Now, here is the title page of the Oxford 2011 400th edition of the authorized version. Cambridge University Press did not publish a special edition of the King James Bible for the 400th anniversary. However, Oxford University Press simply reissued the 1911 300th anniversary Roman type edition and called it the 400th anniversary edition. Now, there's also a, uh, another attempt of putting the 1611 authorized version into Roman type. And that was undertaken in 1903, the, the Old Testament, and 1904, the New Testament. And that was included as part of the Tudor Translations, which is a 44-volume set of famous works translating during the, translated during the Tudor period of English history. And these were published from 1892 to 1909. So included in that range was the 1611 Bible printed in six volumes, and it was printed in Roman type, no italics, no marginal references, no verse numbers. The chapter headings were put in the margin. 
It contains no preliminary material except the dedication to the king and the translator's preface. Now, I brought everything but the kitchen sink tonight. I have a facsimile of the authorized version 1611, a really nicely done facsimile. Then I have some replica pages from the 1611 Bible. These are made to look like they're real pages. I have a title page and then a text page. But I also have for you an actual page from the 1611 Bible. It's 400 years old. Please do not let your children touch it. I would appreciate it. Then I have copies I've made of the 1629, 1638, 1762, Cambridge, King James Bibles. Then I brought one of the volumes of the 1909 Cambridge Roman type edition. Uh, The Oxford 1769, I have a copy I've done of that. And then I also have the 1833 original Roman type edition. I have a, a copy I've made of that. And it's two volumes in one. I have also a copy of the John Boy's Notes, 39 pages. Now, you're not going to be able to read them because they're mostly in Latin. So unless you know Latin, but you will be able to look at them and see the verses he's commenting on. You'll be able to make out where it says Romans, Corinthians, etc. Now, I also have on one table by itself... All, these are copies of all of the manuscripts that list the King James translators. And you can actually see the names of the translators as they're written down. And I also have copies of all the manuscripts listing the rules given to the translators. Now, these are all laid out on the table in a certain way, so you're not going to be able to pick them up. You're just going to be able to look at those. Most of these manuscripts are actually two pages, so you'll see how they're laid out when you go in the room. Now, I also have a volume from the 1903 Roman type 1611 Bible, and then I also have a 1611 facsimile of the New Testament She Bible. Now, once again, this material is designed to be looked through, except, of course, for the manuscripts. Check the title page, check the preliminary pages, check the text pages, look up the verses, compare it with your King James Bible. You can look at the things in any order. There's a lot more material in there than was in there the last couple nights. Now, here are my three books on the King James Bible. And if there's only one book that you get on the subject, you want to get King James, his Bible, and its translators. This is the second edition that I actually just published this year. So this concludes Lecture 3 on the King James 1611 Bible and its editions. I trust that these lectures have given you a greater knowledge of and appreciation for your Bible. I hope you appreciate it more, that you read it more, that you study it more, that you memorize it more, that you meditate on it more. Thank you, Pastor. Let's give him a hand.